This is the Talking Bible Podcast, episode 27. What we are experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of the self as the greatest authority. God is increasingly relegated to the role of servant and massager of the personal will. We will find that progressive contemporary Western culture is shaped by an ancient heresy, Gnosticism. Gnosticism at its heart is an alternate gospel which moves authority from God to the self, in which the individual seeks to power their own development and salvation. Gnosticism views God as distant and flawed. Therefore, it seeks to move beyond God. This Gnostic influence shapes a desire to create a post-Christian culture. A deepening culture mood seeks to move beyond Orthodox Christianity to refashion its beliefs and practices to fit the spirit of the day. The battle lines in the clash are found in issues relating to the individual will. This mood is also felt within the church. Scott McKnight observes that contemporary Christianity has increasingly displaced the Bible as its foundation for knowing what to think and how to live and supplanted it with experience, desire, and preference. In other words, it has surrendered its heart to personal freedoms. Our challenge, therefore, is not found just outside of the walls of the church. It is also within. So that is part of the introduction from a book called Disappearing Church by Mark Sayers. And today we are going to do a book review. Um, I am joined today by two friends of mine, um, one who introduced me to the book and then one who's here for comedic effect, (laughs) uh, Grace and Kayla Poole. Um, Now, I will admit it's not the best book that I've ever read, but it does present an interesting Um, topic, especially for this time that we are living in. So, uh, yeah. Do you guys have anything that you guys want to introduce about yourself or, you know, what you're doing in your life right now? Go ahead, Caleb. (laughs) All right. Yeah, I'm currently attending Moody Bible Institute. Um, I'm in my last semester of my senior year. I graduate in May and I'm majoring in theology and just focusing on school, serving in the youth ministry and um, yeah, just making it through nice uh i'm her sister (laughs) yeah Uh, and i'm just um here because why not i'm not in any of that so yeah she's a barista i I barista i do those things uh yeah now you're going to emt school yes here to provide a little bit of the 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 ground level framework (laughs) kind of your perspective oh my gosh whatever i haven't guys i haven't even read the book so (laughs) I'm just here just to maybe make a couple comments here and there. But yeah, I think ask I'm, questions. Uh, probably won't do that. Oh, yeah. It's going to happen. That's not a bad idea. Okay, I'll ask questions. I'll yeah. Try. Um, so, yeah. Do you have any first thoughts or, or, or anything about that first part right there? Gnosticism. Gnosticism. This book is about Gnosticism. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting like learning about Gnosticism in school and then seeing it transform from just this like object I learned about in school to now a very prevalent cultural reality. And it's nice to have like a name to what we're dealing with and being able to look at it from a practical level. And like, this is what this this lifestyle of self-gratification is called. Like this is where it comes from. And this is how, uh, this is kind of how we can deal with it. So it's interesting. It'll be it'll be cool going through the book and 
learning more about it. Can you explain to us a little bit about what Gnosticism, the word, actually means in the Greek? No. No? <laughs> so, so then I'll explain. Uh Gnosticism, in, in Gnosis, it comes from the, the Greek word Gnosis, which means knowledge, and it's essentially the worship of knowledge. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's what we're dealing with in today's culture. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of more quotes that we're going to go off of with that and just, uh, just uh, what we're going to go through with the book. But it basically presents Gnosticism in our culture and ways to combat it and also just be free from it. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. Do you have any quotes that you wanted to go, go over first or? No, why don't you, why don't you go ahead and start? All right. So the first quote that I have comes from the, from chapter one, um, page 15, the first page of chapter one. It says, post-Christianity is not pre-Christianity. Rather, post-Christianity att attempts to move beyond Christianity whilst simultaneously feasting upon its fruit. Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith whilst gutting it of, it of the costs, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom whilst defending the reign of the individual will. Post-Christianity is Christianity emptied of its content, as theologian Henry de Lubac would warn. Forms of atheist Atheistic humanism often preserved a number of values that were Christian in origin. But having cut off these values from their source, they were powerless to maintain them in their full strength or even in their authority, authentic integrity. Spirit, reason, liberty, truth, brotherhood, justice, these great things without which there is no true humanity quickly become unreal when no longer seen as a radiation from God, when faith in the living God no longer provides their vital substance, then they become empty forms. So Mark Sayers and in, in, in that quote, the reason why it stuck out to me is because it presents what is happening kind of in our culture today, what, what we're kind of experiencing as a church. Um, we see churches that, you know, are kind of moving away from God and moving towards the culture. They're trying to take what we benefit from following Christ without the cost of following Christ. So it's essentially just like taking, trying to take the process of trying to take uh, the benefits of Christianity without actually having to, you know, crucify yourself. Yeah, right. you know, to to the to the cross, cru crucifying your flesh to the cross. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you know, it's 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 prevalent. Uh, just in culture in general right now that people want things the easy way. Right. I mean, so it's no surprise that we're seeing it in churches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you have any thoughts on that? Or? Yeah. I think you just see a lot of people who take the moral values of Christianity, like, you know, love and forgiveness and, um, justice, and then take them and turn them into some, like take the heart of them, which is, which, because they come from God, they're all good and perfect things when they yeah. come from the Lord. Um, but then it can be turned into something else, or it can they want it, like you said, without the cost of, um, without the cost of sacrifice. And yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting seeing seeing those values like in some of my non-Christian friends, and seeing how they practice those values without Jesus and how different that can look. Yeah, so. 
Yeah. I mean, it, it goes to extremes too. Like we see, um, you know, in our hometown kind of, you know, Portland, the Portland metro area, you know, a couple of years ago we had the Black Lives Matter riots, right? And it came from a place of like, okay, we want justice for all peoples, not just, you know, whatever, the, the elite of the time. Um, and it comes from that heart, but then it's demented into something that's evil. They start looting, they start rioting, they right, start, right. you know, they, they don't act in a way that is, they're hypocritical, you mm-hmm. know, they want justice, but then they don't follow the justice. You know, they, they, yeah. y- you know what I'm saying? Right, right. So it, it, and I, you see it throughout our culture. So right now with just a bunch of things, like you see it in our politicians, like they call, oh, we need justice, but then they're hypocritical in other ways where, you know, they're like, oh, we want to defund the police and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Like the people who are bringers of justice, you know, or supposedly supposed to be the bringers of justice. Yeah. Yeah. Make that very clear. I mean, I'm I'm not saying that like, you know, and and that's another thing is like, you know, then there's the people who are like, oh, back to blue, uh, you know, police can never do anything wrong, but, you know, like calling for justice for the police. But at the same time, you need to have the same level of strictness and, and being above board with the police. But it's all disconnected from from Christ. Mm -hmm. It's coming from a secular worldview where it's like, we want this to happen, but nobody's going to put in the work to make it happen. Right. And I think the big thing, too, is God is a God of justice. Like, I know there's that Micah verse where it's like, uh, some, walk humbly, speak with mercy. I'm saying it wrong. And then yeah. walking in justice, that is a huge aspect of the character of God. And I think that you see a lot of that instant justice in the Old Testament, but that's what people don't like to see, is yeah. when they see the wrath and justice of God in ways that they think is too harsh. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it... Um, yeah, but then, so then they take it into their own minds and what they think justice should look like, and it's, I don't know. It's not the same. It's not the same. It's not the same, and it doesn't work because it's separated from, you know, the God of justice, the God who created justice. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you see it all over the place. I mean, there's a bunch more examples that you could give. Um, I kind of want to roll into the next quote, so I'm going to... This is uh, page 16. To get to the heart of our post-Christian context, we must understand how we got here, how the ground shifted. Sometime in the night, a revolution occurred, and we did not notice it. So distracted by the phony war between left and right conservatives and liberals, we have failed to notice that a new power has seized control of both our imaginations and the halls of power. This new power swirls around a small yet widely held set of beliefs. Uh, That being, number one, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Number two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Number three, the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology, in particular the internet, will motor this progression toward utopia. Number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. 
Therefore, social justice is less about economic or class inequality and more about issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression, and personal autonomy. Number five, humans are inherently good. Number six, large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. Seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. So, I mean, definitely some things that you can see. I mean, I, maybe not everybody in their in their communities or everything like that, but that's something that you can see on the news for sure. You know, I mean, even just like the simple sayings of, oh, live your best life mm -hmm. or, you know, um, I love that for you and stuff st <laughs> like that all the time. Like, <laughs> and then like, like just the, oh, I'm, I'm practicing self-care, you know, mm -hmm. and, and which in moderation, I think is okay. But when you're making yourself the focal point of your life, you're yeah. missing the point. You know, we're not created for ourselves. We're created for the creator. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's essentially flipping, flipping what we, you know, celebrate our lives given to Christ. What we celebrate as Christians and making it, okay, we're going to celebrate our life as our own, but reap all the benefits of Christianity. So, you know, like that being, oh, we're going to practice tolerance. We're going to practice justice. We're going to practice all of these different things that, that, you know, Christianity is given. We're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to continue on essentially and build upon these things, right? Without the foundation. Um, you know, one, the, the one that stuck out to me uh, in the points where humans are inherently good. Now, yeah. I mean, you know, in our Western culture, I think that can get muddled because we have a, um, we have a reference point, like in, in the U.S. at least. Like my mom and I were talking about this. Like we have a moral standard that we have set because of our our Judeo-Christian um, beginnings as a country. So, like when we look at ourselves, when we look at, at the United States, we're not looking at the rest of the cult, the rest of the world. We don't have a proper worldview. We're looking at ourselves and we're saying, oh, we could, we could improve upon this. We could build upon this. But in reality, it's like all of our, our, our morality and our generousness, the benevolence that the United States has, has, has given is, has been built upon the Judeo-Christian worldview. It has been built upon like just giving out of the generosity of your heart and because Jesus calls you to and just, you know, kindness that isn't from, you know, selfish gain, you know, all those different things that make the United States what it is today. Not saying that it isn't imperfect. The United States is definitely imperfect, but the things that that are good about the United States haven't come from, from the secular worldview. It's come from the Judeo-Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you don't see it in other countries. Like I've been, I, my latest recent trip to Ireland, it was like, it was a totally different culture. Like, yeah, everybody was nice, but they were all there for their own selfish gain. Mm. Um, and you could just see it in the culture. Um, but yeah, stuff like that, stuff like that, that you don't normally notice or listen to, and you just kind of take it for granted and then just say, oh, we're going to build upon this without having the thing that's actually going to make it happen. Mm -hmm. You see disunity in our country and you see, you even see disunity in the church. Oh 
yeah. Big time. So much disunity in the church. I mean, big time. Um, and that's because people aren't, you know, and, and, and I can't speak for everybody, but there isn't, there isn't the centering around Jesus and letting, letting walking with him, genuinely walking with him. And you can see that. I mean, you can see it now with the way that people, you know, like he was saying, just stand behind politics, conservatives and liberals left and right, you know, and, and failing to notice that there's a war, there's a war for you. There's a war for your soul, you know, and we're not waging that war. We're waging the war against, you know, flesh and blood. Why do you think people go to church today? Like whether they're following, like, what do you think the motivation of going to church is for, like, what do you think some of the motivations are? I think today the main motivation of going to church is community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because of, you know, all of the things that have caused people to, you know, be alone, social distance, all of those, those things that the, the, the pandemic, um, brought, I think people are seeking community more than ever. Um, one of the, I think one of the really interesting things about this book is when it talks about that church, was it in London? That yeah. Yeah. The, the atheist church. Yeah. So it's this essentially this community of atheists who just wanted to experience the, the connections that church bring without Jesus, essentially without the religion associated with it. So they built this community based on, you know, love, acceptance, and that formula and, and it grew pretty well. I don't know where it's at now, but it's just it's fascinating to me how I think humans were so inherently designed for community. Like we may be introverts, like some of them may be introverts, but even even as an introvert, you still need community because that's we're social creatures um, to an extent. Um, so I think you're right. Like a lot of people do come to church, even if they aren't necessarily following Christ, they're coming because they need that sense of community. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, you know, if that's the thing that gets people to church, that's a good starting place, you know, but then it's like recognizing, you know, that we're a community centered around Jesus. Right. Right. That's what really ties us together. Yeah. Because if, if, if we're just a community, we can come and go, we can, we can leave, you know, but if there's something that tethers us together, that we're not just a bunch of people who are here because we're a social club, you know, there's, there's, something different about that Mm -hmm. and i mean i've definitely been to different churches where it is a social club yeah you know and there's definitely some some problems but then there's also a lot of churches who are centered around jesus and seeing the spirit work within people's lives and change is actually happening like i think our church is a pretty good example of people being invested in one another invested in one another and you know really caring about others yeah, I think one of the my favorite things just about our church and what church is meant to be in general is the people that I will meet at this church, I would never connect with on the outside world if we didn't have Jesus bringing us together, whether it be handyman or my dad's a financial advisor, like just all the different occupations or stay-at-home moms and different characters that that uh, and different careers that people have that I would never have the opportunity to know if yeah. I wasn't able to connect with them because of their love for Jesus. And I think that's one of the reasons why community is so essential, especially in the scriptures is we're all like, we're all unique in our, in our desires and in our, and in our abilities, yet we're still so connected because of that love for Christ. Yeah. So yeah. It's what's supposed to, how it's supposed to be. I yeah. Think. Yeah. And there was an interesting comment that somebody had for me that was just talking about consumeristic Christianity where it's like, you you know, you go to a church because 
you like how everything operates. And he was like, you know, there's there's some people who do that. You know, how it really should work is a person should come to a come to a church, see a need for something like and if they see something wrong with the church, they shouldn't go running. They should see the need and want to fill that need. Right. You know, and that's something different about Christianity where it's like you are there not for your own personal gain. You're not there to sit in the pews and just get the message and then take it, take from whatever you want and then just leave. It's like we're there, you know, doing stuff together. We're we're one body, you know, and we're building each other up. We're we're, you know, we're like muscle fibers just working together, you mm-hmm. know, to to get a job done. Um, But yeah. Is it okay if we go to the next quote? Absolutely. All right. So this is in chapter two, um, page 24. If the transcendent elements of faith are ignored or softened, if sin is recast as purely unenlightened attitudes, if evil is viewed as out there, existent in only structural forms, if the hope of the kingdom is reimagined as achievable through activism and sound policy, if a culture exists within the church of Christian self-hatred, it is only a matter of time before one discovers that there are moral, happy people outside the church who are spiritual and who wish for a culture of fairness and inclusion too. One day the penny drops, and one wonders if they can still have what they value about their faith without the restrictions and prohibitions of creedal, communal Christianity. The cultural mood shudders toward the drive to become good. The individual in his own power, perhaps with the aid of the cultural tide of progression, must become good. Kind of goes over what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. I uh, think. Oh. No, 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 you go. I think that people see you know, a lot of the, cause the church obviously isn't perfect and they see a lot of the, the flaws and sometimes hypocrisy and corruption that the church can have. Yeah. And they say, why would I be a part of this institution when I see this, this family that I know who is happy and content with their lives and they yeah. don't have Jesus. So they assume that just because people are capable of being good outside the church, that they no longer need Jesus. I think that's the, that is the, part of the draw of stepping away from the church. It's like, well, I don't, I mean, I see this really angry, cranky dude at church all the time, yet this couple who I know is happy and and they have a good family. So why stay in the church when I can have what this person has without Jesus? Yeah. So how, how would you respond to someone who says, why, why are people happy outside when they don't have Christ? I mean, it's like, it's, what's the verse? It was like, they, there were there, there was a certain verse I, I i remember it clearly but i don't remember where it was at and it was like you know talking about they they knew god but they didn't love god they decided to love the world mm-hmm. you know so it's like you know people can be comfortable in their circumstance and i think why a lot of the times people are uncomfortable in their circumstance like as christians is because we're under attack Mm-hmm. There's no there's no reason for the devil to make us comfortable in our situation because I mean there we can be comfortable and there's a lot of people that are comfortable in the church and you know but for the people seeking for the people seeking out relationship with Christ most of the time your life is going to be uncomfortable mm-hmm. but you learn how to operate within the uncomfortableness because Jesus is right right there with you providing you comfort you know giving you strength right so I don't necessarily know how I would respond to somebody who wants to live a, like 
live comfortably outside of Christ, especially if they had a knowledge of Christ. You know, if you if you knew him and like you were exposed to him, you were you you know you went through baptism, like you had had a relationship with Christ. I feel like if you have a relationship with Christ, there's no going back. I mean, yeah, people can backslide, but you still have a knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. You have a knowledge of of your creator. So for me, like in just thinking about myself, I I think, you know, I, I do look at people and I see people who are happier, you know, or, or, or happier in their circumstance and situation, not uncomfortable, you know, have tons of money. They're not relying upon God. But I look also back at my walk the past couple of years, and it definitely has not been comfortable, but I have grown the most I ever had in all of my life. You know, being youth pastor, dealing with family issues, um, you know, having major injuries, surgery, all of those different things, like, it's just made me grow in faith even more Mm -hmm. because I know that I've seen his hand in all of those things. So I hate to say that it's like an experiential thing and you just have to like, you just go with it. Yeah. But it's kind of that way. It's like, if you know Jesus, if Jesus has revealed himself to you, I mean, it's your decision. You can, Mm. you can love the world or you can love Jesus. Right. You know? And I think also, you know, people can still, who are not Christians, are can still be incredibly loving and incredibly gracious and incredibly kind. Um, but I think that's also because everyone is made in the image of God. People, but it's gonna, going to be, everyone is going to be distorted in their own ways because we're fallen, right? Yeah. So I think that people, when people see people who are loving and gracious, they assume that they can be that way without Christ, which which is, is to a point true, of course, but um, they're that way because they're reflecting the image of God, even if they can't reflect it perfectly, even if they're unsaved, they're still made in the image of God. So they can still act out on those, on those characteristics and the way that he's made them to be, but they're never going to do it in the full capacity that he's designed them for until they walk in salvation. Yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, in the spiritual formation class in the book um, that was given for that class, it talks about like the eclipse of total darkness and it talks about literally losing yourself and 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 letting Jesus be like like be and at that point it's at that point where you let go of yourself you let go of the flesh that you like ach- it's not necessarily like something that you like achieve but i think this is the only word that you can you like achieve peace mm-hmm. you know i can definitely say that i'm not i'm not exactly there yet like i'm still working i'm processing i'm going through the spiritual disciplines and just letting him lead my life and there's like a ton of things that i need to improve on and just be <laughs> don't we all <laughs> like i mean it, and it is a walk it's a process you're you're going through it with mm-hmm. him though yeah you know so but like you know to your point it's like something that you can't do without him yeah you can't do it Right or fully, yeah, because yeah. we need we all need him, and, and he works through us, and which is which is interesting because it brings us to like the next point, and I I think I'm not completely sure if you have an idea or a or I I think I've heard you talk about it before, Pelagian, Pelagianism, oh, Pelagianism, yeah, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that? I can read what the book says about it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, what page are you, are you at? The uh, twenty five. Yeah, so. 
uh, Pelagianism, the belief that salvation can be attained and that the human perfectibility is reachable through pure human effort. Um, I have learned about this in class, but I don't have it in the back of my brain at the moment. But in 20, page 26, it does further discuss and say, at its core, Pelagianism is an hadonostic belief in the individual's potential to control his own salvation. The idea that Adam's sin had corrupted the whole humanity was rejected by the Pelagians as too binding and restrictive. And I've heard Christians today talk about this too, struggling with the idea of total depravity in the sense that because of one man, all of humanity is now depraved. Yeah. And I never thought that that was a difficult thing to grasp. I just assumed that that was totally like, it's just what it is. People can be garbage. Like, but yeah. I had never, I had never recognized that, that that was something that was difficult for people I mean, because it is a hard theology, like the consequence of one man yeah. now affects yeah. all of humanity. And that's, I think, where Pelagian comes from. It's like, well, I don't want to be doomed to sin. Like, I'm not doomed to this one man's consequence. I make my own choices. So I'm not automatically fallen and I can achieve salvation myself. And I think that's kind of where that came from, I think. Yeah. And I mean, like, there's a couple of churches that kind of go along with that theology where I, I think the Unitarian theology kind of mm -hmm. has that view that you can be perfected yeah. by your own yeah. efforts. And they also have the view that you can you can be saved by any kind of theology mm -hmm. from any religion. Like yeah. if you come to the knowledge of truth, I mean, a very, very extreme view uh, kind of Gnosticism, a very yeah. extreme example of Gnosticism in the in the church right now. Yeah, I mean, even just people who think that, you know, I need to be, if all I need to do is be a good person and I'm going to go to heaven, like, they may not follow a strict, or they may not follow a, a religion or anything like that, but they just believe that inherently as a good person, you automatically deserve, you know, like the good place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, but, but with that, it's like, always my question is, what is their preconceived notion of what good is? Like, yeah. because oh without Christ, you what can't, good? You, there's like, there's mm -hmm. no line. There's yeah. no line for what good is. So you're basically deciding what is good and what is bad. Well, that's where narcissism comes from is, is what is good for you. And you do what is good for you as long as, as seemingly, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. Yeah. So um, you are now the highest authority. Your morals are what is good. As long as you're following your intuition, as long as you're following your convictions and your morals, then you are doing what is good and the best thing for you. Yeah. Wait, so you guys don't think that you can be have an idea of what good is without Christ, like without the Bible, without scripture. You, you well, there well, isn't any sort of intuition. Okay. If, if we're just following, like following, uh, <coughs> it in a logical step, I, I think people can do good things without knowing necessarily. Like yeah. if God created us, he created the world. He created what is good, what is evil. Right. Then, mm. then Obviously, without without Christ, we couldn't know exactly what good and what evil was. There would yeah. still be like a misinterpretation mm -hmm. when we have it laid out for us right in the Bible from God's God's word uh, of what good and what evil is. And even the fact that like if we know something is evil in our heart, if we have a a, a uh, like if He speaks to us and lets us know that something is evil in our heart. And we go against that, that it's a sin, that it is evil. You know, something that is, you know, good to other people may be wrong for others. Like, that's the thing that we deal with. So it's like to, I guess, just, I think 
people who don't know Christ may be doing things that aren't wrong, but I don't think that they can have a true understanding of what good is without Christ. Hmm. Yeah, I think, like I was saying earlier, is everyone is made in the image of God. It's all, but it's broken. Mm-hmm. So I think people are capable of acting and reflecting in that image of God and operating in goodness. Um, they're just not able to do it in the, maybe they're just not able to do it in the full capacity of the way that God yeah. intended them to be. I feel like though, in a way, we are all kind of biased in that because, yeah. I mean, we all grew up with Christ, like our parents introduced us at a young age. So it's hard for, I feel like us to have a valid opinion, not maybe a, not a valid opinion, mm-hmm. but like a true understanding of it if we would genuinely know wrong i feel like that's a first of all that's just such a hard question yeah well i feel like most people know like there's this there's this theory or there's this um argument for god or proof for god called the moral atonement theory and that's the idea that moral oh shoot i'm saying it wrong i can't think of what it's called but it's basically the idea that um because all of humanity has a general idea of morality like most humanity knows that murder is wrong assault Mm -hmm. is wrong that because there's that inherent understanding that someone or something put that into humanity. So, and that is proof that there is some sort of creator because most of humanity inherently knows that it has, has a baseline yeah. moral value. But wouldn't you argue that because they have that, that baseline moral that they do have it like it, I mean, it's hard to explain like what I'm, what I'm thinking in my, my That's brain. Okay. But like I feel like that baseline is almost enough to prove that without without having the knowledge of Christ, you can still determine like what yeah. is good and what it's not. Yeah, I don't think you can that people are incapable of knowing what is good and what is right and wrong. I just don't think they're going to be doing it as it was intended by God okay. and like perfectly. Okay, not I can, that anybody I can, can do it perfectly. I can see that. Okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I need to look. No, up. no, no, no. I. I I like it. You know, it, it definitely uh sorry. It definitely uh challenges the thought and I think I think I still I still think that, you know, like people can't know love without knowing God. People can't know no no truth without without knowing God. And I mean, maybe I have a predisposition because I grew up in the church, but at the same time like uh knowing uh that you know, like, I hate to go back to the experiential part of it. Like, I know, like, even when I knew Christ, like, I was doing things that were wrong and, like, but I thought they were right, I guess. Give us, I don't know. Give us an example. <laughs> I mean, like, like watching certain certain movies, like, okay. the con- conviction that I had in my heart, like, I, I knew they were wrong, but at the same time, I thought, like, what what's the problem going to be when I wasn't walking fully with Christ? Like... I would say I never left Christ, but I was definitely a lazy Christian at, mm-hmm. at some points. So like those certain things, like I think maybe some people might not know how to discern the feeling or the conviction without Christ, hmm. you know? Okay. I don't know if that connects at all, but. Also, the proof is called just called the moral argument for God. <laughs> it wasn't the moral <laughs> influence theory. I was like, I know I'm overcomplicating it. It's the moral argument <laughs> moral for God. Argument. Gotcha. All right. Do you have any quotes for the next chapter or anything like that? Uh, for two or for the rest of three? Uh, for, for, for two. For two. Sorry. No, not two. So at the beginning of chapter two, it talks about World War II 
and um, how it kind of drove up people. It, it drove people because it was like there was a very form, a very real form of evil out there in the form of um, the Nazis. Mm-hmm. So there was uh, different Christian speakers like C.S. Lewis, T.S. Mm-hmm. Eliot, W.H. Auden, Evelyn Waugh, uh, Graham Greene, um, who embraced or returned to the Christian faith. Um, so I don't know exactly what would cause this, you know, other than just like having very, very real forms of evil in front of you. Mm -hmm. But like in the same way, the opposite side of the spectrum, you have a time like this where there isn't really war, you know, or at least war that we could see there. I mean, there's rumors of wars that are, you know, happening all across and like conflicts and stuff like that, but there isn't a very real war. We're kind of like subdued into this mindset where, oh, nothing can touch us. We're just here, you know, and what we got to worry about is the things in front of us and me, mm-hmm. yep. right? Those are the most important values. I, I'm, I suspect, and I wonder, I don't know if this is exactly true or not. If when we experience very real forms of evil in our life, if it drives us towards Christ, because mm-hmm. it seems like it did that during World War II with these particular Christian speakers, you know, the rise of communism, the, the rise of Nazism and all that different, different things. But that's my suspicion. I think anything, any sort of external pressure forces us to recognize the need for Christ. And I think that we're in, at least in America, we're in a time of relative prosperity. You know, we don't have to hunt and gather, you know, we're, we don't have to go out for water. Um, we can DoorDash our food, yeah. DoorDash our groceries. Um, we're in a, we're in a very, and I mean, that doesn't apply for everybody. I know people struggle, um, but we don't have a ton of need. And mm-hmm. when, I think when wars happen, suddenly that need is very prevalent. You know, there is violence in the streets, there's chaos, there's pain and there's suffering. And, you know, we see on social media, people standing up for example, like Palestine and Israel, but we're not there. We're not suffering yeah. with them. And when we, because I think when it's not in front of us, when we're just seeing it through social media, it's not impacting us. And it's not like we can see, like, I mean, it's very evident that violent, like the world needs Jesus. Like that's just blanket statement. But I think when it's not at our doorstep and it's when it's not as prevalent, we don't, it's, it's what world, I think what world war two did in the sense of the rares you're talking about is they were so aware of the evil around them. And they, but they recognized that that evil was due to a lack of Christ. Yeah. Whereas people maybe today don't recognize, like don't look at war in that way anymore. Yeah. I know in my own personal experience, the, the thing that kind of drove me back to Christ and me taking my faith seriously and, you know, trying to really just cement my life in, in Christ was the pandemic. And the reason why was because I was seeing a world that was full of lies like there was misinformation everywhere and i knew that the only place to get truth was in christ in the bible right. you know in his word yeah i mean that was the thing that drove me back to church yeah i think a lot of stories about people who have stepped away or deconstructed a lot of people who come back to the faith are people who hit rock bottom and they realize yeah. their need for christ yeah and until people realize their need for christ they're not going to choose him like why would i choose this life, this life of sacrifice, this life, this life of cost when yeah. I don't need to. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah. And like, I totally recognize that. I can see that in my own life right now. Like, you know, I just got a new place. God, thank God he blessed me with it. And I just uh, started working back, back at one of my old jobs. And now I have this influx of, of money. <laughs> and like, after the first couple of days, I was like, Oh dang, I haven't even, I haven't even gotten the word. Like I haven't even read my Bible and it, I haven't even gotten prayer. I, like when I'm in worship, it's like lackadaisical. And it's because like my very real need for him, like, and stuff like that, like, like it was a rough year last year, Yeah. but for, for me and it was rough, but it was, it was good because I recognized how much I needed him. Yes. And it was interesting mm -hmm. to like, be able to self-assess that over a couple of days time I was getting comfortable in what I provided, what, what quote unquote, yeah, I yeah. provided for myself. So it's weird how, how slippery that slope is. Mm -hmm. And you can definitely see how America can so easily get there because we don't have many like actionable, like, Oh, I need this right in front of me. You know, I don't know. It was interesting. Uh, I was in my literature class. We talked about social media and they had us do a 48 hour media fast twice in the semester. And she was complaining about how um, parents like helicopter parenting and yeah. how um, the parents have the location of their children on their phone. And my parents have my location, and my sister's location. So I'm not against it. Mm -hmm. But her point was that because we are so obsessive and controlling of what happens to children, or not, I say this with a grain of salt, but like, we're not allowing God to step in and intervene and protect. Yeah. Like, you know, if I get stranded on the side of the road, I can say, Hey dad, I'm here. Come get me. But their opportunity of a stranger to come and stop and provide, and like the Lord to send somebody to provide is not impossible. God will absolutely still do that. Mm -hmm. But there's, we're in so much more control and control too much control. I think, um, it, we're not as required to act in faith because we have yeah. so much control now that we no longer have a quote unquote need for faith. It limits how much God can work. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, going to Africa was kind of a big eye opener. Um, I've been twice now to Gambia, West Africa. And this recent trip, most recent trip, I got to see two people who were set free of demons. Hmm. Um, so they were, they were, uh, under a spiritual attack, but they looked, you know, the, the first, the first girl she came in, she was passed out. Um, and they started praying for her and she started convulsing on the ground. Like it was, it was, it was crazy just seeing what was happening. Right. Like, because you don't see that, you know, and most of the times you would just like, you would label it like schizophrenic or something like that yeah. in America. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was like saying like, words in a whispered voice like and then when the demon was cast out it was like she hadn't remembered anything that had happened like mm -hmm. and then there was another girl who got released of you know she she there was there was deliverance from from demonic spirits but um needless to say it's like those people don't have a lot out there um it's a third world country um and they have need and because they recognize their need, they're able to recognize that they need Jesus, mm -hmm. you know, that much more. Yeah. Whereas like here, we don't have much need. So why would we need something extra? 
you know, yeah, need something that requires me to give something up. Yeah. And that's what Jesus asks us to do. Like we, there is an element of sacrifice to following Jesus mm-hmm. and we don't want to sacrifice things. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Super interesting how that happens and how it ties back to Gnosticism, wanting what you want. And then it like goes to how does the church minister to a culture that, you know, doesn't really have need. You know, how do you speak to a culture in that way? Which kind of brings us to the next point, which is like just the thought um, in the second chapter. um, He talks about the church's fight for uh, relevance in the contemporary church. Mm -hmm. Um, And it causes mass droves of deconstruction. Yeah. So do you kind of want to give us some of your thoughts on can you reread that um it this was just the thought that i that popped up it was like the overarching theme that the fight for relevance in the contemporary church is what causes mass waves of deconstruction you know i think i honestly i think we try to make jesus and christianity too flashy and we try to make it attractive and we try to make it interesting so that we can draw people in yeah and but i think I mean, I hate to oversimplify it, but I really do think that we're just to just to preach the gospel and the gospel alone stands for itself because that's what it does. Mm -hmm. And if you bring people in who are just attracted to the fun lights and the the great music and the powerful teaching, that's all those are all well and good things. But if they're just there for that, they're Mm -hmm. not there for Christ. And that's why I think we see deconstruction so much is because there's a good chance these people didn't, were not, not always, but may not have been there for Christ in the first place. They were there for what they thought Christ would do for them or they thought the church would do for them. Yeah. And they were disappointed and they saw that the world could offer them something mm-hmm. else, something better in their eyes. So they, they walked away. And, and I think along with that is like the churches, where, the, where, where do the churches mess up? And I think the churches a lot of the times mess up when their teaching doesn't necessarily, you know, enforce that, you know, this is just, this is just a way to speak to our generation, right? Mm-hmm. Not that, oh, this is the be all end all. This is what you need. Like, you know, going, I, I hate to bring up Africa again, but like no, going to Africa and like going to church on Sunday, we were, we were in this, like, it was like a shack essentially it was broken down busted windows the piano only played on like some of the keys um just some of the greatest worship that i have ever ever had the chance to be a part of Mm. and one of the most powerful sermons that i've seen like you felt you felt the spirit in that place yeah you know something was different and like then you then I come back and you know not saying that our church our church is flashy by any means we're <laughs> yeah. we're, we're kind of an old church we're we're definitely a ring, but like just m- miles ahead of what the African church was but not not having the ability to experience that just raw faith that that just that just you know like that raw faith. How many people were at that church? Like ten. I think that's a big part of it too. You have people who are there who are only there for Jesus. Yeah. Whereas the bigger the building, the more people are going to come, which is great. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. But the easier it is for people who to come in, who maybe are not as invested yeah. in Christ, they're invested in the community, which yeah. has its pros and cons. 
Yeah, and and I mean, like, there's there's churches in our area that that are a little bit more flashy, and they use it to connect with people, and that's probably their main audience. I know there's a church in our area who serves a online um, community of over ten thousand people, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there was recently uh, somebody from our church who visited this particular church. N- and they're a great church, sound teaching, sound doctrine. Um, but the person left that church and came back and, and they were talking to me and and uh, they were like, yeah, one day we're going to get all these flashing lights and get get technology on board. And, you know, inside I was like, OK, um, maybe, but that's not like the point. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah it's, it's 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 great production. It has a lot of value, but mm. uh, like as far as production goes, but. You know that doesn't that doesn't provide the real value. The real value right. is what is if Jesus is showing up, and there's people who who are committed to Jesus. Like there's people who are you know behind the pastor, behind the elders. You know that are just enforcing that this is a culture where we celebrate Jesus and we want Jesus to be invited into this house. Yes. You know, so I don't know. That was just kind of like my perspective of that conversation and it definitely ties back into you know like where churches try to fight for relevance they like the big flashy lights they you know with the unitarian churches they change their theology so that more people will come mm-hmm. you know they allow certain things i mean a lot of denominations do that where they change th- certain things about their doctrine so that they apply it to the culture which becomes wishy-washy yeah. and then like like it says later yeah. in the chapters, it's like people don't like wishy-washy. They want to see something different from the culture when they mm-hmm. come to church. Yeah. So. Yeah. And not to say that people can't change their, th- like if they, if they find themselves wrong or if they do want to change, that is fine within the boundaries of scripture. Cause there, there are definitely theologians like Augustine changes theology throughout, throughout his lifetime. Yeah. Um, but what, what's but the like salvation, salvation level issues. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, no, yeah, that would, like like the Unitarian theology, how it changed that. Oh, you can come to any truth and be saved. Yeah. Right? You don't have to come to the name of Jesus, which is in direct opposition to Scripture. Um, that, oh, you don't have to know the name of Jesus to be, to be saved. Like, that's just out there. So do you think it is, it is wrong to use more, like, relevant things like, you know, engaging worship and in the sense of, like, the lights and the, the high tech, like... Is it, is it, is there, I don't think it's wrong, Mm -hmm. but it shouldn't be the focus. Like Mana House, they do a great job of, of doing that balance. And if you don't know Mana House, it's a big church in, in Portland. They're, they're pretty solid, um, theologically. And, uh, they, uh, and they have a campus for teaching. They have a school, Mm -hmm. Portland Bible college. Um, but they really center, like they have all the flashing lights, they have all the production value, but that's not their main focus. They have small groups. They they make sure that their pastors are pastoring people, um, that people are getting the guidance, the, the support, the accountability that they yeah. need in their walk and making sure that their doctrine is solid. You know, um, so I know that, that through relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Something that you're not going to see in a lot of those, those, those big flashy churches where they're all about the production value that Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, this, this isn't a Sunday service for community, for fellowship, for, for sound teaching. This is kind of, you know, just like a production. This is, you know, like you're going to a concert or something and some people like that. I think we should put the stage and the worship stage, the music stage in the back. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's essentially what most of those 
big churches have is they, but you know, I don't know. I think it's it's hard too because coming from a small church, we kind of have that predisposition to like small churches. Yeah. Um, sure. but you know, there's there's big churches out there who do an amazing job, like Manor House, like mm-hmm. you know, uh, Crossroads. They do a, an amazing job at connecting people. Yeah. Like New Heights, they they yeah. connect people to you know small groups and and yeah, and, the community groups. Yeah, yeah, and those are huge and instrumental to growth in a church mm-hmm. because you're not going to find growth by just coming on Sunday and leaving. Yeah. You know, and of course, there's going to be people who go to those churches maybe to like, oh, I'm just going to go to the Sunday service and then not Check connect. Check off the box. Check off the box. Yeah. yeah. Because they're just easily accessible. You don't have mm-hmm. to talk to anybody. You know, you can kind of slip anybody, in. You can slip in, slip out. Yeah. Slip in, slip out. But I think there's churches like that who just do an amazing job at fellowship community yeah. and Plus making sure. Way more resources, which there's yeah. a lot of benefit to that. That is nice. That is nice. But, you know, God provides. And, yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Especially with the small churches. Like he's not gonna take yeah. he's not gonna take a, a, a church that is that he doesn't want out. Like he's he's going to keep the churches going that need to be going and he's gonna give them the the resources necessary and, and but the church also has to be good stewards of it, you mm-hmm. know. Like I know obviously that our church is not is not supposed to be a flashy church, you know? And I know that Mike knows that like, we're not a flashy church, but we're here for people Mm -hmm. and we're here to grow with people. Mm -hmm. It's a family, you know? Um, so yeah. Chapter three. All right. Uh, page 41, as they transitioned out of their allegiance, this is, this is, uh, talking about, um, China and communism. Very interesting quote. Um, that that is used because it, it it's a it deals directly with a study um as they transitioned out of their allegiance to what they saw as failed Id- ideology of communism chinese leaders schooled in the art of the long-term view looked curiously to the west to uncover the secret of her ascent from a murderous medieval backwater to a peaceful and prosperous culture their investigations uncovered a key factor as an academic from China's Academy of the Social Sciences explained. We were asked to look into what accounted for the prominence of the West all over the world. At first, we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we had. Then we thought it was because you had the best political system. Next, we focused on your economic system. But in the past 20 years, we have realized that the heart of your culture is your religion, Christianity. That is why the West has been so powerful. The Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life was what made possible the successful transition to democratic politics. We don't have any doubt about this. That's so interesting. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That the, I mean, the the fact that they would just try to look into the fact of like, why is America so successful? Mm -hmm. And the only thing that they could find was the church, the backbone of the United States. I was reading this book called i believe it's called jesus in america jesus made in america yeah and it kind of goes from jesus in the from the puritan to today and mm. one of the things they talked about is when they were establishing the government and the and the ideal citizen yeah they made sure to model it after christian morals so that huh. they were ingraining christian morality into what it means to be a good citizen in america interesting super interesting yeah <laughs> weird 
Yeah. I mean, like, and the irony of that is that still the Chinese haven't implemented it. Mm-hmm. You know, that that they're they're still trying to like follow that Gnostic route where it's like the search for knowledge and the search for self, you know, is going to make you perfect. Plus if Jesus is more important than and then yeah then the ccp then it doesn't even doesn't even matter where's your power you're not deriving it from the self anymore they, yeah. If, yeah if they promoted christianity they'd be promoting something higher than them and that would be jesus it, yeah and it also makes sense why the church is like the thing right now that is under fire that is under like scrutiny and it's mm-hmm. only gonna I, I mean i don't want to be a naysayer or anything or like you know a doomsday person but it's only gonna get worse yeah um Especially with people yeah. with tr- people in churches conforming to what the culture is pressing on them. You know, if you don't stay orthodox, then it's just going to get worse. People mm-hmm. are going to find hypocrisy and people are going to find things wrong with the church. So, yeah. Um, so chapter three, it kind of presents the next, in the next steps, it presents the cultures. There's three cultures that it talks about. And uh, I'll just read them for you. Um to understand both our current cultural climate and the limitations of the relevant approach, the work of the provocative sociologist Philip Reif is a helpful tool. Reif divides culture into three broad types. Here are the first two. The first culture. First cultures believe in many gods. The individual is a victim to fate, and the world is full of rational spiritual forces. To survive, the individual must obey the taboos of the, the gods through turning to a shaman and witch doctors for guidance and protection. The world is a frightening, spiritually charged place. The individual feels besieged by forces beyond their control. Number two, the second culture. Second cultures are scriptural scriptural cultures rooted in Judeo-Christian ethic. They center their entire order on the worship of the one true God. The whole of the universe is arranged by God in in a rational, sacred order. There are not taboos, but rather sacred prohibitions and commandments that must be obeyed. And these commandments and prohibitions ensure justice and human flourishing. In the second cultures, God reveals himself through scripture. Thus, religion is creedal. The individual finds peace, security, and faith by worshiping God and obeying his commands in the world. Then uh, the third culture, the third cur- the third culture exists primarily to define themselves against second cultures. They believe in no greater truth. There is no sacred order. Instead, their energy is devoted to deconstruct deconstructing the sacred. They have no creed but heresy, and their cultural power is centered on transgressing the sacred commandments and prohibitions of the second culture. The one authority is found within with the individual. Thus, there is no possibility of a sacred order. All authority that challenges and restricts the autonomy of the individual must be leveled. With with no sacred order, the the third culture is in constant flux as new authorities and rules appear, but are soon deconstructed. The meaning and purpose of all stories, rules, and symbols is contested and left up to individual interpretation. Thoughts. What are your thoughts? I mean, it seems like the West, more than like, you know, Eastern cultures, you know, like, you know, Middle Eastern, uh, Arab, Islamic, you know, um, cultures are dealing with this more. 
um, more than them. And I don't necessarily, I mean, we have talked about it. It's the comfortable piece, but like, when did this get instituted? Like when, when did it become like a prominent idea? When was it that we were chasing after the self instead of Christ? When was that switch? Because we have, you know, the sixties, right? Where it was like, you know, the, the sexual revolution, the hippie movement, you had all of those different things happening at the same time, but you also had, you know, mass droves of hippies coming to Christ. Yeah. Billy Graham. Yeah. I mean, mass, like a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know, and just amazing authority, authoritative Christian speakers. And then after that, you kind of have a lull, I would say. You kind of have a lull where it's like, okay, there's, there's this Christian culture, but we're not really doing anything to progress. And I don't know if that's when the third culture started to set in. You see it in our, in our universities now, where that's mm -hmm. basically what they preach where it's, it's, it's all about the self, there is no God, um, and there's no question about it. If you question it, then you're questioning our authority, and we don't like that. You know, like, because, I mean, I would even have arguments with my professors when I was just going to community college, you know, about certain things that were just like, okay, this is, this is created order versus what you think it is. Mm -hmm. Like, I had a... a um, I had a paper that I wrote about um, uh, about serial killers, and I was looking into what made them um, serial killers. And, and upon every single serial killer that I studied, the main problem, the thing that drove them to have this weird thing, was was first of all a weird sexual fantasy, mm -hmm. and being exposed to pornography, mm -hmm. specifically violent pornography at yeah. a young age. Um, and then it driving them from there. You mm -hmm. saw it with Ted Bundy. Uh, what's the other one? Eight people. Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer. You saw it with Edmund, Ed, something, Edmund, Edmund something, a big tall guy. And, and, and there was always something where it was a weird sexual fantasy. Mm -hmm. And uh, then this, uh, you know, I didn't even necessarily use any Christian talking points, but my professor at the last minute disagreed with me and said, you can't write this. Well, it wasn't necessarily like you can't write this paper. I wrote it anyway, submitted it, but he gave me a bad grade on it because um, my source, um, because Ted Bundy had an interview right before he died um, where he was talking about the effects that violent pornography at a young age had for him. Mm -hmm. um, and my uh, professor said that the interviewer was disreputable because he was part of a Christian organization and Ted Bundy was just trying to get uh, more time mm. before he died, uh, more time for death row, Interesting. which is a presupposition yeah. that you shouldn't necessarily be making, especially if it's the testimony. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, like you're, you're, you're basically making a assumption against somebody's testimony that it was all fake. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I understand his point of view where it's like, okay, I'm making it the assumption that what he's saying about himself was true. Um, but I think there's more evidence to go off of. Especially that, if there's a correlation between that and other serial killers. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's more uh, uh, of a more evidence to support the theory mm -hmm. that I had um, with, with, 
with what I had, you know, versus what he had. I don't know how we got on this tangent. What was I saying? You were talking about <laughs> uh, third culture, and then we were talking about oh, what 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 was the flip? Like, how did we switch? From, how do we switch there? Yeah. And you're talking about the sexual revolution. And... Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it it just seems like a lot of uh, a lot of just uh, like it the fact that we were so comfortable. You know, the 80s and 90s were very prosperous. You know, and then we then we had. Uh, you know, the war in Iraq, the war on terror, and then, you know, just all of that stuff. And it, it seems like we're getting to a precipice now where people are, are starting to choose, you know, one thing versus the other, that it's, that it's, it, you're either choosing, you know, whatever other faith other than Christianity and, and, and atheism, it's all bunched into one category. And if you're within those categories, you're fine. Right. But if you're a Christian, there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. Because it 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 makes you opposed to everything that and everything else kind of stands for, right? Mm -hmm. Like something wrong. What do you mean? Like, can you expand on that? <sighs> that you know, as far as like, I, I guess I'm I'm speaking off of experience, which isn't necessarily completely valid, but it seems as if the Christian worldview is looked down upon by most of peers, individuals in our culture nowadays, that it's limiting, that, mm -hmm. you know, um, all of these other religions provide individual will, that there's not really, like like it was saying before, the creed, um, the tradition, traditions, yeah. that, that because we have a creed, because we have a traditions, because we have doctrine um, as, as a Christian church, you know, as the church, you know, I'm, try, I'm trying to delineate myself from the others that don't necessarily stand by that creed. Mm -hmm. um, but because we have that, that there's something wrong with us. It's hard. I feel like because I think on either side, I feel like everyone is always going to like, because like we have that same opinion of somebody in a different religion or someone that doesn't participate in religion whatever it is mm -hmm. i think it's so easy to like have people i i don't know if you guys have experience with this but it's so easy to like have people be like oh they think this of us because you know they have they've said this before blah 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 blah. but it's like from that everybody we have the same thinking towards other people like and in, i'm not saying that everybody does but when you see that you're different from somebody else you're going to think like kind of like we think it's weird if somebody's an atheist yeah they would think it's and weird so of course so they're gonna have a different mindset yeah. of us than we have of ourselves because it's it, you're just opposites i mean you're and that's the issue is that we all there's nothing that can like you know i'm trying to think about how to say this without sounding weird like, like there's nothing that can reconcile the differences that we yeah, have with one another yeah because it seems like like you said before that we're at war with like the opposite side and like that is i think in my opinion really bad thinking because mm -hmm. separating our like us from other people based on religion sexuality whatever i guess i guess what i was trying to mean when i was saying at war with the other side not at war with flesh like like not at war with people but mm -hmm. at war with idol ideologies that seek to destroy the truth mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily the people but it's it's the ideas behind it like like it's saying about this third culture that you know they believe in no greater truth 
I believe in a greater truth. There is no sacred order. I believe that God ordered everything in the universe. Um, you know, that energy is devoted to deconstructing the sacred. I mean, I think there is very real evidence that, you know, like, like even just like the government with, uh, you know, the, the two parent household and kind of deconstructing that, like, mm -hmm. and how it's had effect on, on certain communities. And we're seeing its effects across the board. You know, even certain things like that att attacks the Christian faith and the, and the things mm -hmm. that we hold dear, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I so mean, I guess that's what I'm talking about. I'm not yeah. talking about people. But you you use the words that people look down at us, you know, for our Christian views, whatever. Mm -hmm. But don't you think that you look down, not necessarily look down on other people, but like you in a way separate yourself from other groups of people and you in a way not necessarily judge them for the way they act but their principles the way they live whatever i mean it's the same on both sides i mean i, I think argue. you can have opinions but i i guess i i mean that that probably is a struggle that i have but i i guess that's not the right way that i should act yeah in in terms of like judging people mm -hmm. like i'm no better than anybody else i'm in the same need of jesus and i think that's what differentiates us from everybody else is that we all recognize our need. Whereas like every single other religion, like you can say I'm more holy than you or, you know, like they literally have a caste system yeah. in India, like for Hinduism where it's like, Oh, I'm better than you because I have lighter skin. And if mm -hmm. you're, if you have darker skin, that means that you're, you're basically confined to the hardest jobs and labor, slave yeah. labor, you know, and stuff like that. You know, I mean, even with Islam, like it's all works based. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you're not secure that you're you're going to be with God, and God mm -hmm. isn't necessarily a loving God. With Judaism, you're not secure, you yeah. know, because you don't have a savior. You don't have a saving grace for our imperfections. Did I answer? Did, did no, I answer? I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying. Like sometimes the language of how we say things can, I feel like, be kind of skewed. And like I, I don't know. I just want to make it clear that it's not like everybody has their mm -hmm. their perceptions of other people and other groups. So I, yeah, I, no, that was good. I was just, I was just making a comment. Right? Yeah, yeah, good, yeah. Good to clarify. Yeah. Um. The entrance of Gnosticism. So um, this is later in the chapter, page 51. Um, After encouraging the creative minority of Jews living in Babylon to seek peace and prosperity of the pagan city in which they found themselves exiled, God warns his people, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams. Uh, do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them. The creative minority would face the temptation to abandon their godly calling. This temptation would come in a religious form, cloaked in dreams and lies. For those wishing again to be a creative minority in our time, we also face a similar temptation wrapped in spiritual language, reshaping our dreams and lies. Over half a century ago, another contemporary Hebrew prophet warned of another temptation faced by Western culture. The philosopher Martin Buber... <laughs> Discerning an emerging and destructive trajectory within society warned that the, that a new religion was being proclaimed. Warning both his fellow Jews as well as Christians, 
Buber observed that this new religion was fundamentally different from biblical faith. This new religion could be detected in an increasing obsession with the self, with personal development and preference of spirituality over religion, and with therapy over communion with a transcendent God. It was the elevation of self above God. Although this religion seemed new, Buber noted, it was the return of an older strain of thought. It was the return of Gnosticism, the gospel of self. So, after this piece, where it explains kind of the entrance of Gnosticism, um, he explains a movie um, that you recently watched Mm -hmm. called Safe. Yes. Do you want to tell us kind of what the plot line is to Safe? Essentially, there's a pretty basic suburban housewife. Um, She's married to her husband, and he has a son who's her stepson. And she's a stay-at-home mom, very focused on getting the ideal home, the right, the couch in the right shade. Um, and one day she's driving, and this exhaust from a truck hits her, and she goes into a panic attack in the car. And then she, a few later in the movie, she goes and gets a perm, and she gets a bloody nose due to the chemicals from the perm. And she slowly kind of dissolves into this paranoia about toxins in the world. And in order to save herself from the toxins, she kind of joins this group who also affirm her paranoia about toxins. And then she slowly kind of begins to isolate herself, first beginning with, you know, isolating herself in a room in her house Mm -hmm. to isolating herself into a community of people who are also sensitive to toxins um, to the point of where the end of the film, she is isolated in this bubble from the community and the uh, the film ends with her basically looking in the mirror saying, I love you, I really love you, affirming that she's making the right choice in preserving herself to the point of isolating herself from everyone who loves her and supports her. Hmm. Yeah. And when was this movie made? 1995. Yeah, so that is a very interesting movie. Um the fact that at the end she's just saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, mm-hmm. I love you. You know, and, and later uh, he has a quote, not from the movie, but he has a uh, in, in the book, page 55, it says, uh, Safe is essentially a religious work, albeit one shaped by our contemporary attitudes. The film follows a classical Christian narrative, yet one that is emptied of its theological content. Carol, despite being wealthy and privileged, is confronted by her spiritual poverty. This existential crisis is never recognized as such. And thus her cosmic smallness and fragility does not lead her on an existential quest for salvation. Her deeply materialist worldview leads her not to reflect and ponder life's greatest questions, but instead her spiritual crisis is focused purely upon the body. She wonders why her skin reacts, why she feels overwhelmed by exhaust fumes, why the chemicals at the beauty salon cause her nosebleeds. In the, in the traditional narrative, an individual confronted by their own spiritual poverty would be forced to examine their own sinfulness and egotism. However, in safe, the caustic and destructive effects of sin are reduced into the material substance of toxins. In the Christian narrative, the individual who is made aware of their own spiritual poverty and their own sinfulness is then made aware of their need for salvation. In Safe Carol, after being made aware of her own physical fragility and chemical intoxication, 
seeks the secular version of salvation, safety. Carol's conversion occurs during a sermon-like presentation on the toxicity of the mm -hmm. contemporary world, and she feels that she has become enlightened to the true nature of the world. She will be whole when she is safe. In the established Christian spiritual journey, the individual having undergone conversion seeks out spiritual community and fellowship. Carol does just that as she relocates to her desert commune, safe place. The parallels between the desert commune and a monastery are striking. The group lives uh, austere lives, shorn of their tostic nasties of contemporary life. They, sling they sing together, listen to teachings from their guru, and retreat to their cell-like rooms. Eventually, like a modern-day version of the medieval writer and nun Julian of Norwich, Carol seals herself into an igloo-like cell. However, unlike Julian, who, enc who encountered a transcendent God in prayer and scripture, Carol can only search inward for love, seeking an answer to her spiritual poverty and her own resources. Thus, the final scene of Safe is a devastating piece of cinema. As a broken and spiritually impoverished, Carol feebly utters into the mirror her mantra of self-love and her quest to find love. Truth and peace within collapses into an anxious, miserable heap. Yeah, so it's super interesting because it's like what I get from that, what I get from that example of this movie safe is like there's two ways you can go about it and the wrong way leads you to a dead end mm -hmm. where you're looking to yourself for guidance. You're looking to, you know, oh, this cleanness, being away from everybody, being being in a in a sterile environment, safety from anything that could harm me is the answer. But then, you know, if the movie went on, there would still be something wrong with that that thing. So, you know, as far as I see my peers at this time going, it's like, you know, they're kind of following that same trajectory. You know, some 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 of my peers, not all of my peers, mm -hmm. at least, you know, when I'm thinking about like high school and college, um, some of my peers are following that trajectory where they're looking to the self for answers. Um, and I think there's going to be a mass awakening at some point in my lifetime where people realize that that is not the answer. Yeah. But it's going to take something big to make that happen. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? I think we just, I don't think that when we're looking for salvation within ourselves, we think we know what's best for ourselves. But what we don't realize is that we are limited beings. And the beauty about following God is we are following a limitless being. You know, yeah. He is the one who has created us. So there's something bigger than, bigger than ourselves. And I think there's a piece to that in knowing that not everything is in my control. And there's, and there's a a great peace to surrendering that control yeah. and to a good and loving God. However, if you think that you know what's best for yourself and you don't want to be surrendered to another being, then you're not going to do that. You're going to be seeking your own salvation or your own satisfaction in accordance to what you think you need. But someday you're going to realize that you, there's, you fall short and you're going to disappoint yourself. Yeah. And that's what, I think when people hit that rock bottom period and realize that they they can't save themselves, they need something outside of themselves, and that's because we're made for Christ. 
But what about like in this in this scenario, this movie, this example, going in a road where you never hit that rock bottom? Because I think that's what he was explaining. Hmm. Is that in this in this culture, in this in this form of Gnosticism, you know, where you're protected from everything, you never hit that rock bottom because you're always you're still seeking the the self that the self is going to find the answer the self is your god yeah where where he was saying kind of that the contemporary like christ like the 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 orthodox journey the the journey of the christian mm -hmm. finds himself at rock bottom and then he realizes his need for a savior right so i don't know i think that's tough like too because a lot of people don't know christ so they don't know that they're in their rock bottom and there's something else to turn to like it i mean with her in the movie was it at all I, I didn't see it was it at all related to christianity like was she scriptural at all like no so like how i don't know like, i feel like how would be how would she hard. have known that <laughs> yeah, yeah she to was... turn to something else when you haven't been maybe not exposed because i mean apparently everyone is exposed yeah i don't think the movie <laughs> is explicitly <laughs> trying to convey a religious message i do but it was a good it was, it was a good, good example. And that, yeah, yeah example yeah but like as an every like like I said before, we all grew up with Christ, so it's so easy to like turn to God or yeah. to use that as an example. But when people don't know yeah. and haven't made that connection that they can depend on somebody else yeah. and that someone else has control over their life, like I, I couldn't imagine, I don't know what I, what I would do. You know, like yeah. that would just be, that would be tough. I, I think people will just find temporary solutions, whether it be a partner or a job or having kids like something to fulfill that need that kind of makes rock bottom worse or covers or not sorry worse. not worse, <laughs> yeah, <it makes laughs> worse. no but kind of covers that up you know like puts is kind of like yeah. a plaster job over it you know it may not be because christ is foundational christ is the one who like we build our foundation upon him but when you so he is the one who kind of repairs and fills up the rock bottom but when you find i think people will just have to find unless yeah, people have to find things that will temporarily ease that pain or temporarily bring your mind temporarily bring your mind peace, and mm -hmm. that can range from anything. Um, but it's never going to be a permanent fix. Yeah, you know? and I think to to your point, Grace, that like some people just don't know. I think that's the role of the church. That's the yeah. role of the people with the knowledge. And that's that's the reason why we go out, why there's evangelism, why we, you know, why it's everybody's call as a Christian to go and, you know, preach the gospel, mm -hmm. you know, to every nation. You necessarily like have to be evangelizing constantly, but like yeah. even just you being a solid Christian as a friend in somebody's life, I feel like is really important. Like, cause they see how strong you are in your yeah. faith. Yeah. how you can depend on your God or whatever. And I think that's, that can show people really something else. Cause if they can depend on you, they can also depend on God. I don't know. I, mm -hmm. I kind of, that's how I see that as. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, like I, I see where you're going. Like I see that, where you're maybe going. Maybe that was a little far. Like more to, relational. But, yeah. yeah, it is. It's, it is relational. No. And that's definitely a starting piece for a lot of people where they're like, okay, there's something different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's kind of what I was trying to. Yeah. No, no, no. You know, and, and, but there's also where it can go the wrong way. Whereas like somebody, oh, somebody didn't have a faith as strong as I thought they did. And then they leave the church and then they bring droves of yeah. people out of the church with them. I think that's why, like when we tell people about Jesus, yeah, we have to make sure that one of the things I love about our church is we do not at all try to be perfect. Like I love it. I don't know if <laughs> I love it when the worship messes up. 
Like, or when Mike slips up in a, in a past, like when he's preaching or not that he does it a lot, um, <laughs> but you know, trying to cover for Mike. Um, but I, I really, and you know, whoever cracks in the floor and the doors don't always work. And I think that there is a beauty to that imperfection because it shows that we have a lack. It shows that we have a need yeah. and we're not portraying this perfect ideal Christian. We are portraying someone who needs to be loved by God. Yeah. And so when we have, when there's someone who we look up to in the church and who, who, uh, it turns out they have a hidden sin or they, they walk away from Christianity that may hurt my, that may hurt me. And that may be incredibly sad to my heart, but that does not mean that Jesus is unfaithful. And that does not mean that Jesus isn't real. Yeah. It's so, just hard though. It's, oh, it's hard. So like, hard. I mean, yeah, it, especially if you're not like super comfortable yeah. in Christ, like not, you could, I mean, it's human nature to see the flaws in mm-hmm. things and yeah. like define that thing by their flaws. Yeah. And like, that's something that I've done multiple times in my past is like, oh man, this person said this to me and now that's how I view myself, that something's mm-hmm. yeah. wrong, blah, 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 blah. And it, but that's just, just because that one person, like it, I don't know. It's so hard to step away from viewing, you know, who you looked up to. They failed. And that, I don't know. It's hard not to associate that with, associate that with religion. Yeah. I mean, that's what a lot of Especially people Especially if it's like somebody introduced you to it, like yeah. somebody baptized you, mm-hmm. like walked with you, discipled you, and you see that their faith, like it can definitely rock a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Like, um, but maybe that's just a issue of like, you know, not, maybe maybe not even proper discipleship you know like if you're going to disciple people you're going to have to let them walk out their own faith i mean it's just like like my parents did my parents let me go my own way they were like yeah you don't have to go to church if you don't want to you're a high school or you're basically you know you're 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 an adult at this point you can make your own decisions mm. even though i i wasn't necessarily adult but um yeah for, for the longest time i didn't go to church you know, I would still read my Bible now and then, and I would like encourage my friends to read their Bible, but I wasn't going to church. I wasn't practicing Christianity and you know, the, the way that it should be practiced where I'm having community around me, supporting me and, 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 you know, going through the spiritual disciplines and things like that. But, um, I don't know. I just think there needs to be more of that where it's like, you're letting people go off on their own. You're letting people like lead because I think when people like, like if you're leading a small group or something, mm-hmm. you know, you get to a point where your disciple is just like, okay, no more, no more getting milk. You're, you're done with the milk. You can handle real food now, mm-hmm. you know, go out and make your own disciples. Like, I think a lot of time in the church, you can kind of get like pigeonholed into like being a disciple forever. And then yeah. like, you're, you're their leader now. And you know, instead of Christ being their leader. So it makes almost like the person who's leading have like a God complex. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know if it necessarily relates too much with what we're dealing Mm -hmm. with in the book, but. But kind of looking to like, it's posing the risk that the disciplee is relying too much on the discipler instead of on Christ. Yeah. So if the discipler falls, then the disciplee disciple disciple falls i don't know disregard that (laughs) yeah i mean like and and what was interesting too like it it doesn't take it doesn't it shouldn't take a crazy like a crazy amount of time to to set up leadership in a church and to and to you know like in titus 
in Titus's example, it says that like Paul set up the church of Crete in four weeks mm-hmm. and established the leadership in Crete in four weeks. Mm-hmm. It took a month for him to, to disciple the people in the church of Crete. Yeah. And it was probably imperfect and they had to, you know, go through yeah. a couple of things, but you know, letting people, you know, who, you know, like, okay, yeah, Jesus is in their lives They're They have the Holy spirit in them and letting them go off is like, it makes their faith their own where they're not relying mm-hmm. on somebody else. Yeah. You know? I do think though that there is a lack of mentorship in the yeah. church today. So it's like, I, I do like, we don't want to risk. That? Yeah. You don't want to risk making yeah. an idolization of the mentor, but also the Bible is very evident about the older men teaching the younger men and the older women teaching the younger women. And yeah. I think that's a big part of community. Um, so, and I think that's why another reason why I think some it's a lot easier to walk away because you don't have that com- accountability to stay. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have someone who's like, hey, you know, let's, you know, every once a month, like we're going to get coffee and we're going to do life together and we're going to chat. Yeah. Um, so when that when, you know, a, it's, I think it's a lot easier for people to fall, fall through the cracks. I was talking to somebody who used to go to our church and I was like, you know, I really wish you still came. Like, I'd love to see you. And they're like, well. When we left, nobody reached out to us. So we didn't feel like we belonged. We didn't feel like you guys wanted us to come back. I was like, dang, that's wow. That's that's tough. You know, I mean, that's that's hard to hear from <laughs> someone you care about. But that's on like there's there's a level of how do we ensure that if someone is struggling or wants to walk away, how do we as a church better hold each other accountable and better love one another? Yeah. If that happens. Mm hmm. Yeah, it, it it's definitely you have to strike a balance with it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not as easy as just talking it out yeah, because yeah. like in, in the ideal, it's like, oh, yeah, we would do this, this and this. But, you know, yeah. you're working with people and people are people are, yeah. you know, in and process. There's the extreme of too much because I love tradition. I love liturgy. Yeah. You know this. Mm-hmm. But in certain faiths like Catholicism and Anglicanism that are very liturgical, very traditional, it's easy for the church to become your religion where it's like, oh, all I have to do is follow Lent. All I have to do is go to confession. I don't have to make my faith my own because the church does it for me. Mm-hmm. So I think there's value in non-denominational churches in the sense that like you make your faith your own, but there's also value in the structure that liturgical churches provide. Yeah. So I think that there needs to be a balance of both. Yeah. But that's a whole other. Engine. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely need to strike a good balance in the church and, and, make sure that there's, you know, there's the traditional aspects, you know, and, and the, the ways that you can relate to, you know, people like, I I don't even necessarily think that the whole entire, like, it's not necessarily wrong to have like a, a a flashy church or like, Mm -hmm. you know, to have like, um, you know, like I know a lot of churches, they just like, everybody's pretty artsy and they, they dress very nice, mm-hmm. you know, and, and people are attracted to that. They're attracted to people who are, who want to look good. Right. Yeah. But the, and that's, then for them, that's a form of worship, like yeah. getting to dress up and spend time with people in Jesus, like in a way that that, if that's how they want to honor the Lord, there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. But if they it, it's condemn, the extreme of making yeah. it about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. If you say you're not holy because you're not dressed up, then mm-hmm. there's a problem. Yeah. So if it's personal choice and personal conviction, there's a lot of beauty and worship in that. Um, and it, it's a way that you communicate to the surrounding, like, like I know that, that this book, it, it talks about like 
trying to communicate to the modern culture, right? I don't think that all forms of communication to the modern culture are wrong. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. you know, communicating in a way like, especially with youth group, like you have to communicate in a way that, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I, I, this book definitely deals with that. Just using like, like you can have orthodox teaching. You can have really just solid grounded teaching in the word, but still make it, make it easy for He's easy to be communicated to mm -hmm. a certain generation. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, dealing with like, like bringing examples of like basketball players of the time or like, you know, certain examples of what's happening in, in the news, like, or, you know, and even just like dressing like, like the youth, like, mm -hmm. you know, Paul even gives examples of like, you know, I became like, I, I became like certain certain people in certain people groups yeah. so that I would be able to communicate with them, yeah. essentially is yeah. what he was saying. That's really tough though, because like you don't want to present You're not you're not changing yeah. Yeah, what not, you believe. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But there is a there is a line, I feel like because you don't want to seem kind of like you Oh, I'm just trying mask, to do this for them. Yeah. Yeah, but, you mask yourself yeah. and who you are yeah. to that specific group. Because I, I that's something I do is like uh, I match my personality to whoever I'm talking to. Chameleon. <clears throat> I am yeah. chameleon. That's something I've been trying to, like, I feel like I was definitely like that in high school where I would very easily just turn on and off aspects of my personality depending yep. on who I'm engaged, who I'm around. Yeah. But truthfully at this point, uh, <laughs> truthfully at this point, uh, it's my filter. I have a filter still, but I don't, like, basically when I do my best to... Be as authentic as I can. Yeah. Probably with more with more of a filter, depending on the surroundings I'm in. But other than that, like, mm -hmm. I want to be authentic. I want to, yeah, you yeah. know, I don't want to have to hide different aspects of my identity or personality it's, depending on who I'm around. It's tough though because we're weird, so it's like it's <laughs> hard not to be like. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. This is a side note, but I really, really <laughs> loved the play that. We did for the youth. It was like the, oh, the like we read the script. Yeah, that was yeah, it, um, Gary Gary Jones. Gary Jones. Yeah, Gary Jones and family. Creative, one of the funniest, most fun youth group experiences. It was yeah. a basically like a a scripted version of Lazarus being raised from the dead from the perspective of an outsider, dialoguing with the Pharisees who were trying to figure out how Lazarus. It was just, it was hilarious. You'd have to be there. Um, but yeah, shout out to Gary Jones and family. <laughs> Very creative and funny people. Yeah, and it communicated to the youth well. It did, it, and they mm -hmm. laughed. But it, it but it was it solid. It was something that you yeah. know you could you could back up with biblical yeah. teaching. Um, I kind of want to read this this quote. It's a great picture of <laughs> how orthodoxy and staying with solid biblical teaching and doctrine just it, it, the value is is shown. Um, so this is page seventy one. Um, so it says, recently I watched a documentary that explored the diversity of teeming life in the deepest and most remote jungles. We are shown the incredible response of the jungle to the falling of a tree. We see the open space created when a huge tree falls in the dense jungle. Instantly a race begins among the plant life to fill the space. Light pours in and space opens up to be filled. The space where the tree once stood is filmed for months using time-lapse photography. The space is quickly filled with a variety of broadleafed plants. Their large leaves are able to capture large amounts of sunlight, 
ensuring rapid and spectacular growth. Soon, thin trees begin to break through the broadleafed plants, shooting their wispy trunks up to the unoccupied space, beginning to fill their branches with leaves. The growth of these trees seems impressive compared to the broadleafed plants around, yet next to the giant trunks of the large trees that surround them, their height is not that impressive. In reality, their position is precarious, for soon something begins to happen around their thin and vulnerable trunks. Small, thin vines begin to lap at the bottom of their trunks, snaking their way up. At first, there are just a few vines, but soon they are legion, and piggybacking off the pre-existing structures of the thin trees. They soon dominate the space and the sunlight. The thin trees now are almost invisible, buckling under a suffocating blanket of vines. The vines appear to have won the race. For a while, there is nothing, just the vines. The growth appears to have halted, but then something magnificent happens. A lone trunk appears seemingly from nowhere, piercing the blanket of vines. Its trunk is thicker, its form solid, rising above the vines. It keeps moving, at first doubling the height of the other trees and plants competing for the open space. Soon, it is ten times their height. Before long, it has reached the height of the surrounding trees. It is gigantic, magnificent tree. The space has now been filled. This tree will last for centuries. This, the, the broad-leafed plants the, that initially filled the space do so by gaining spectacular, visible old, early results, yet their leaves, roots, and structure are fragile. They sacrifice sustainability and longevity for short-term gain. The trees that break through next also gain some success, but their structure too is not resilient. The vines gain some success at the expense of others. They parasitically exist on the hard work of surrounding structures, only to eventually overwhelm them. All of these strategies do not succeed. When it comes to doing ministry and mission in the open space created by the disappearing church and the third culture, we can face similar temptations. We can create something that is spectacular and visible, but ultimately fragile. We can attempt to grow quick at the expense of long-term sustainability. We can parasitically live off pre-existing structures, eventually overwhelming them with our critique and, their, and with their collapse being our collapse. For just like the huge tree, creative minorities are built upon deep roots. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's a great picture of just like, you know, church growth, growth in people, it's slow. But when you focus on investing in people and, and, and walking with Jesus and making sure that it's not like, okay, we're just going to, you know, ride some wave, you know, of what the church is popular for at the moment. You are ensuring that, that the growth in the church, that the growth in discipleship, that the growth in small groups, that the growth in community and working together isn't just something that goes away. It's, it's going to stay for generations. Yeah. You know, along those lines, uh, page 74 says that we need to again rebuild the devastated spaces and structures of our culture. We need to breathe commitment, responsibility and dedication back into our faith and our churches. Richard Foster once said the desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. The deep roots in the and foundation in Christ of created minorities will ensure resilience. Mm hmm. Yeah. Just need to, I don't know. I. It's hard because like, I feel like the answer to all of this, you know, disappearing church, which is kind of in the conclusion, but the, the, the disappearing church and the, the, 
the 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 faltering of you know our culture and the the questioning and the your truth my truth but the tr- the answer of all of that to all of that is just knowing Christ and following Him and yeah. like creating deep roots that are foundational to your life and to your faith and then just being an example to other people and then inviting them in. And it's just, yeah, I don't know. That's and and, and creating a a culture of like church. And it it, it just, it it doesn't just mean like, okay, the the church that you're going to, it means like the church, the church in your Mm -hmm. area. Yeah. Like I notice increasingly like with, with, with pastor Mike, he, you know, head pastor, mm-hmm. uh, y- you know, like meeting for, for prayer meetings at, at this local church that he goes to, he meets mm-hmm. with a bunch of pastors yeah. at the pastor's prayer meeting and they're praying together all centered around one thing. And that is Jesus. Yeah. And it's like, when you center the church, the church as a whole around Jesus, we're going to, we're not going to see that initial growth, right? We're not going to see that crazy, crazy initial growth with the broad leaves, getting a bunch of attention from the sun, you know, and like, you know, uh, ensuring that you'll grow the fastest. It's like this this long-term growth that you are going to achieve because you're rooted in Christ. You're mm-hmm. not rooted in the surrounding excess or whatever from yeah. the culture. Yeah. You know. This is very similar to the parable of the, the, the sower and the seeds. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it does it does have to do a lot with how 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 we hold ourselves like as Christians, how we hold ourselves as the church. Mm-hmm. And what standard are we holding ourselves to as far as like uh, teaching and community and, and, and maintaining, you know, solid, a solid Christian foundation and that foundation being Christ, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I don't think we necessarily, unless you had more points, I think we, we hit it right on the dot, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes, there are the, the and I don't want to have, I don't want to have camped, on the fact that there's a lot of things wrong. I don't want to have been just like focusing on that. The fact that there's an opportunity out there means that there's things that we can do, that we can institute in our culture, in our church, that in effect changes it. Because like people will go their way. People might not come to your church for a while. People might, you know, do their own thing. But at the end of the day, people are going to be like, what is so different about you guys? Why are you not like the rest of our culture? When our culture is going to to crap, you know, mm-hmm. people are going to be like, what's so solid? What are you guys standing on? Like, I want that foundation for yeah. my life, you know, may or may not be that way. Who knows? We don't know what's what's next for the coming culture. But I mean, there's opportunity out there, you know. Which I think is is the beautiful ending to this book is that there is opportunity because we have Jesus mm-hmm. and we have a solid rock on which we stand. So, all right, do you want to pray us out? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Father God, I just thank you for the opportunity to dialogue with friends and to learn more about you and how we could possibly, you know, minister and engage with. Um, the culture around us and how to love people better lord i pray that this blesses people and that um yeah just it would stimulate conversation and growth and yeah i just pray that just be wonderful oh yeah i just pray that honors you lord Disney. 
Amen. Amen. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you guys want to reach us on any of the socials, um, we will have those links provided down below. And uh, we don't have a schedule at all for when we will be posting next, but we will try to get more episodes out to you. Um, but it, it just depends on when we have time and uh, when uh, when uh, guests. I definitely want a lot of, uh, a couple more guests for the future. And uh, But we'll be reviewing more books uh, with with Kayla and maybe Grace if yeah. she wants to come <laughs> the next Grace time. To I'll come, actually read know. next time. <laughs> I know I know that the next book that we were talking about doing was uh This Present Darkness, which is uh right. which is a great book. It yeah. was either This Present Darkness or what what's the one by Paul Bunyan? It is uh I don't know. <sighs> this the there's also a second book to this called The Reappearing Church, which is how to build a resilient church in today's culture. Which okay. Could be a possible interesting one, but I mean, there's so many good, so much good literature about there about yeah. Jesus because he's he's cool and people like to write about him. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't remember what the other book was you mentioned. Yeah. Oh no, it was the um, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's right. Progress. Yeah, I wanted to do Pilgrim's Progress and then potentially this Present Darkness. Um, mm-hmm. But we'll we'll see about that and then maybe the Reappearing Church because that sounds like an interesting book as well, especially yeah. if it's a continuation of the ideas that Mark Sayers has already brought mm-hmm. up in this book. And we will have this book provided down below via um, whatever website this is on. And uh, so you guys can buy it if you want. So. A little, um, little book club. Little Join book us club. in our little discussion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but other than that, yeah, we'll see you when we see you. Uh, and uh, yeah, God bless.